evening, everyone. It's good to see you. My name is Derek. I'm the campus pastor for RUF. And this semester, we are studying Philippians. We'll be uh, trying to figure out how we can find and, as much as humanly possible, retain, it's easy to find, but hard to keep, joy in a world that's gone flat. And part of what Scripture says is true about the world gone flat is that we are contributors to the problem, that uh, we too... Uh, as humans, go flat. And uh, that if we're going to find joy, that we have to change. Uh, That's what we're going to talk about tonight, the necessity of change. And it's a little hard because change usually involves being different than we are currently, and we don't like being different. Uh, Different sometimes is awkward. We don't know necessarily, we're not convinced why we should change. And even if we do become convinced that we need to change, we often don't know how to go about it. How do we change in a way that makes us more normal and not even more strange than we already are? Our text is uh, Philippians 1, 1 through 11. I'm only going to speak on the last three verses, but we're going to read the whole thing. So Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, show us wonderful things in your law tonight. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would be gracious to show us yourself. Holy Spirit, be gracious to take these truths, some of which will cut and hurt for our good. Take these things and apply them to our heart, we pray. We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I know we have different high school backgrounds present in the room, but um, this will ring true for the majority of you. Harold's high school was structured like a human brain. There was an executive's function in this case, the principal and the rest of the administrators who operated under the illusion that they ran the school. But down below, amidst the lockers and in the hallways, the real work of the organism took place. The exchange of notes and saliva and crushes and rejections and friendships and feuds and gossip. There were 1,000 students and therefore roughly 1,000 times 1,000 relationships, the real substance of high school life. The people in the executive suites believed the school existed to fulfill some socially productive process of information transfer, usually involving science projects on poster boards. But in reality, of course, high school is a machine for social sorting. The purpose of high school is to give young people a sense of where they fit in the social structure. In high school, life was dominated by a universal struggle for admiration or approval. The students divided into the inevitable cliques, and each clique had its own invisible patterns of behavior. 
Gossip was used to spread information on how each person in the clique was supposed to behave and to cast shame on those who violated the rules. The students would burn out if forced to spend their entire day amidst the social intensity of the cafeteria and the hallway. Fortunately, the school authorities also scheduled dormant periods called classes <laughs> during which students can rest their minds and take the pressures of social categorization. So uh, some of you may not have experienced that, but some of you did, and some of you may be still experiencing that to an extent here. And the reality is that some folks are stuck in high school for all of life, still trying to find their fit, still trying to find their clique, still trying to catch the clues of the appropriate social behavior in order to fit in. In fact, for many of us, all our lives long, we've been trying to find the right group, catch the right clues, fit the right mold, behave properly so we fit in. And it's colored the way we think about all kinds of institutions and even the way we think about God and his people. That if we're going to be part of God's people, part of God, we have to behave in a certain way, we have to perform, uh, we have to be good, or we'll simply never be accepted. And uh, this, I believe, is part of the fundamental misunderstanding that not only many Christians, but lots of skeptics and cynics have regarding Christians and Christianity. We, being Christians, those that are present, and we that are not in the room that are confused or trying to figure it out or deeply cynical, frankly, we don't understand how proper or good behavior fits rightly into the idea of Christianity. We think we know, but we're actually usually wrong. It ends up being all, it's all up to me, or nothing. God loves me, therefore I don't have to do anything. I can be whatever I want to be. So it's all up to me, or God loves me and approves me so I can do whatever I want. But what we're going to see tonight in our text is that Christianity, unlike high school, is not a beauty contest. But it's a beautification project. Christianity is not a beauty contest, but a beautification project. And those are our two main points. We'll talk about one and then the other. So first, how Christianity is not a beauty contest. And here I'm talking about the beauty contest of good behavior. Whatever it is that you think that you have to do in order to be a good Christian, to make God happy with you, or that you will fit in to the people called Christians without them judging you. Uh, because for the most part, the way we think about Christianity is what's true of most world religions. We have to be good, and then God's appeased, and then he'll take us in, and his people will like us. And that is not what Christianity is about. So the first thing our text challenges us on is the idea that Christianity is not a contest. There's at least three ways in which that's true. We're looking just at verses 9 to 11. Uh, beauty contests typically have categories and standards and sources. Now, I don't watch beauty contests, but I hear that there are like talent components and evening dress components. And they have to stand up and like make a speech where some of them at least make fools of themselves and they become famous um, <laughs> because they don't know basic geography. Um, but there are these components and categories and scores. And that is clearly not the case regarding Christianity. Uh, Paul here is praying for a group of believers to mature and grow. And he prays for them in such a way that it blows away the idea of a standard. In verse 9, he prays that they would be abounding in love. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And that word abound means overflow. 
That word overflow simply means there's a standard of fullness and it flows over it. And as if that's not enough, he says, abound more and more. And the fact that he's praying for this is Paul's way of saying, if you're a Christian, abounding excessive love is the norm. Now, it's hard. We don't all, we're not there. But if there's a standard, it's an impossible one. So um, this is certainly, certainly not, it looks like, a contest. If it is, there are no contestants because no, no one would rise to the occasion. And also, a beauty contest is something that you prepare for. You prepare for, you practice for. There's a time in which you probably act, you do your performance. Uh, Christianity is not like that. Some of you think like that. I have to get ready for church. And by get ready for church, you, you think not only like get dressed, although you live in Pittsburgh, so you don't have to really try to think differently. But you have to like think differently. That's not a shot at Pittsburgh. It's just a reality. Western Pennsylvania is awesome. Um, anyway, um, this is different. And a, a clue here regarding Christianity, uh, how it's different, is in verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. Now that word pure means lacking impurities, which is clear. But it also means sincere and authentic. And this is the exact opposite of what many skeptics or cynics think about Christians. Which is that we act really good, but we're really not. And of course, Christians are a mixed bag. None of us are perfect. And many of us, most of us are deeply flawed. But Paul is saying the goal is, is that our goodness would be sincere. It's what I call the 3 a.m. test. What do you like at 3 in the morning? And the same, same is true with a beauty contest. You know, a beauty contest in which you like just ran into a bunch of people's rooms and said, Wake up! Oh, well, don't have the winner here. Um, that's sort of what we're talking about here. It's not how you act, it's who you are and who you're becoming. And thirdly, it's not a contest because contest implies competition. And there are no competitors here. Uh, a contest means being better than others or judged better than others. And that's completely missing from, from Paul's prayer for their maturity. He's not praying they would be better than someone. In fact, he prays that their love may abound more and more. And grammar nerds, you notice that there's no object to the love. Love for whom? Love, love who more and more? It doesn't say. And I think the answer there simply is the Christian answer, which is love God and others. This sort of rules out competition. Like You just can't be all about being better than other people if your call is to love everyone with an overwhelming, abounding love. There is no competition it's not a contest. Christianity is not about being better than someone else. Instead, it's about striving to be good for someone, not to please him or, or appease him, but because you're in love with him. And it's a clue of that in verses 9 and 10, that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So Christianity is not a beauty contest because it's not a contest. And secondly, quickly, it's not about your glory. It's not about your glory Beauty pageants are all about the glory of the contestants. The crowning moment in which not only the world that's watching and everyone in the audience, but also all the people you just beat. I love how they do this. Well, I have seen it. Maybe this is the only part I like. When all the other competitors who've been working their whole lives to win this thing have to turn and look at the queen as she's coronated and smile and clap. 
when really they're thinking, I'd love to choke that woman. Um, maybe they're not thinking that. But most of them probably are. It's, it's the coronation of their glory. And that's not the case here. This is all about God's glory and praise, verse 11, that we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And this strikes at the nature of our motivation for why we decide to be good or to change. Most of us, if we think about like needing to be good or better people, it's usually motivated by one or two things. And there are other possibilities I don't have all night. But two, to save your skin. So there's a note here, you know, the day of Christ. This is shorthand for when Jesus returns. If you believe Jesus is returning, it's good news for some, it's bad news for others. And you're thinking, I don't want to be those others, so I'll be good, so he won't crush me. Um, so it's hell insurance. The other possibility is you want to be good because you want to be other, better than other people. You want the glory. You like being better than other people. In other words, you're a self-righteous jerk. And um, I'm not bashing you by saying that because I've been one most of my life. Um, but it's true. That's often the motivation for all we decide to be good. The reality that Paul is praying for is that they would embrace a lifestyle of growth, of abounding love, of being, we'll talk about this in a moment again, so in tune with what Jesus is doing through them that they grow and abound in love and fruit, that it would abound to God's praise and not to their own. Uh, Christian growth, by its very nature, forgets itself. The person who's growing forgets themselves and thinks of others and thinks of God first. When I was uh, about eight years old, I went to this Halloween costume party contest thing at my church. And uh, I was pretty excited because I had the best costume ever. And I was going to dominate. So uh, often, you know, when you're eight, someone, this is like 30 years ago before you could buy like fancy costumes for eight years old. People would just throw a sheet over their head and they'd go as a ghost. And my dad and I decided we would go as a, I would go as a mummy. And he took like the time, I think it was like an hour or two, to rip up sheets, strip by strip. And he slowly wrapped me and I was the perfect mummy. I practiced walking and talking and I was going to dominate. <laughs> this is awesome. So... Um, what happens is I get there, I'm feeling pretty good about myself, my chances, and I notice that a thread of it had come loose on my heel. So I decided I'll go into the bathroom and fix it. I've got to fix this thing, it's got to be perfect. So I go in and start trying to fix it, and slowly but persistently it gets worse until my foot's unwrapped and then my leg, and then I'm starting to get anxious and freak out, and before you know it, I am down to my... I think they were like long, white long johns. And I finally come out of the bathroom with just a handful of strips in my long johns. And I'm like, someone help me. Please wrap me quickly before the contest. And they're like, son, the contest was over like 40 minutes ago. Ah. They say, I missed my chance to dominate. And the disappointing part, hold in there, I was having to go back and tell my dad. I had to go back and tell my dad. Now, I'll tell you this story not to break your heart. Although, I am enjoying it at this moment that you're feeling my pain. And it's not just that I missed the party. It's that in trying and obsessing to fix myself, which I could not do, I did not ask for help. I did not go to the person who did it in the first place, who could have fixed me, my dad. I did not go to him and tell him to fix me. I thought I could fix it myself. And because of that, I missed it all. I missed the party. I missed the occasion of my, my father's pride and joy. Christianity, friends, is not a costume party. 
and it's not a it's not a beauty contest, and you can't fix yourself. And some of you need to need to quit. For some of you, the first most important step you need to take tonight, this year, is to quit trying to fix yourself. I'm not saying you're not broken and you don't need help. You might need a lot of help. I am saying you probably are not the best person to fix yourself. When you are trying to fix yourself, you lack perspective. You're lacking perspective on the sense, if you're a Christian, that God already loves you and accepts you, has accepted you in Jesus and forgiven you, and has pledged to work in you. But because you're, because you're committed to doing it all by yourself, you refuse to let him or anyone else in. You live in hiding. You vacillate between pride when you're doing well and despair when you're doing poorly. And in this case, if this describes you, if you call yourself a Christian and you're thinking, I'm always trying to fix myself. I'm always picking on myself. I'm always trying to get it just right so God and others will accept me. Then we need to talk about the doctrine of justification. Not why you should be a better person, which is sanctification. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But justification. The fact that in Jesus, if you trust him, you are forgiven and accepted and not condemned. God does expect and demand growth and character change from his people. But it's on the backside. He doesn't demand character change and growth in order to accept you into his love, into his family. He requires you receive the gift of what Jesus has done in his perfect life and death for you. He forgives you, accepts you in. But once he brings you in, he is committed to making you like Jesus. He's committed to making you like Jesus. And this is the process of sanctification. And are you ever committed to big theological words? Sorry. Sorry. We're committed to explaining what those big theological words mean. And sanctification is the idea that God is at work in you to make you like Jesus. If you're a Christian, God's at work in you to make you like Jesus. So God is at work in you. Looked at this a little bit last week, verse 6. God doesn't start something and not finish it. I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He's begun it. He's continuing it. He will finish it. In verse 11, that you being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We are to be filled, for Christians, with the fruit of righteousness. Now, that may be a long, hard process for us to be filled. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's not up to you exclusively. It comes through Jesus. We're talking about a strong relational connectedness here. When you trust Jesus, if you're a Christian, and he forgives you your sins, he doesn't just say, you're forgiven. All right, now you need to start cleaning yourself up because you're a mess. Have fun with that. Nor does he say, I love you, and you're forgiven. You can now do whatever the heck you want for the rest of your life. Actually, God loves you so much that he's committed to improving you, to beautifying you, because sin is damaging. Because trying to fix yourself and hiding in shame and guilt in the closet for most of your life is not good for you or anyone else. God is committed in his love to making you more beautiful. So, he's committed to work in you to grow you in the family likeness. We get sort of a short picture of what that looks like here in, in our couple of verses. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Abounding love 
with knowledge and discernment. Now, if you're a careful reader and you're a cynic, you should look at this and say, how is that even possible? Abounding love more and more. It's just like sappy, sentimental heaping together of phrases. doesn't mean it's just love, 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 love. Ah, whatever. With knowledge and all discernment. And that phrase discernment there, the word's very interesting. It actually means practical knowledge, skill and tact for everyday living in practical situations. It's the exact opposite of the empty sentimental love that some of you think this means. God's desire is to grow in you as a Christian a love that abounds, that knows how to act in this real world, in the mess of it, in difficult situations every day. We don't think that exists. We really don't. And that's because we don't ever see it. Hardly ever, except in very mature people. What we see it is Jesus. Read through the Gospels, watch how Jesus loves hard people and broken people, and you know what? He gets it right every time. Every time he says and does the exact right thing. He's about the only one. And God is committed to working that love into the lives of his people. Uh, Secondly, that we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. The fruit of righteousness. And here we're talking about, I'll just use the shorthand of the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's all good stuff. I don't know anyone, I'm sure I could find someone on campus. I don't know most people. Most people want those things. Those are good stuff. That's good stuff. Love, joy, peace, patience. I could deal with that. God's out to make you like that. And in the end, he's out to make you pure and blameless. You're never going to get there in this life. This is progressive. It takes time. It's a growth process. But God finishes the work of sanctification and what we call glorification. When Jesus comes back, he finishes the job. He makes you like himself. God will finish what he completes. God will finish what he starts. Um, There's a strong relational, sort of organic imagery that comes through. We have that with the in you, the through Jesus, but also this fruit of righteousness. And it reminds me that, well, growth is organic. We don't grow in closets. And, And the Christian understanding of growth is that we are rooted in the person of Jesus. We are united to Jesus as Christians. And what you need to know is that this is messy. And the best illustration I have of that is my children. Um, I have a two and a half month old, Alicia. She is beautiful. She's the most beautiful baby ever. Uh, what happens when you have children is you start off really objective, and with each successive child, you lose brain cells because you don't sleep. <laughs> and your IQ drops, and you lose objectivity. So I knew my son was beautiful. But I was like, ah, he's just a kid. He's beautiful, but so are all the other kids. And then with Abiel, I was like, she's really cute. And with Alicia, we're like, oh, she's the most beautiful baby. I can feel myself getting dumber. Um, But she is beautiful. You should come see her. Um, And we love her, and she's cute, and she's starting to smile at us. Except for, I mean, when their babies are born, they just smile at you when they fart. But now she smiles all the time. Like, she's engaging us. It's awesome. It really is. It's amazing. She's engaging us. And yet, you need to know this about my daughter. She pees all the time on herself. Two and a half months old, they don't have normal bowel movements. It's this liquid, orange, nuclear stuff. (laughs) It, like, singes. And she stinks. 
And not because of the pee and the poop. She stinks in general. Like, and that's because we're bad parents we don't give her bath salt enough. But what I want you to know, why I tell you this, there's good news here. You can come over here and bathe my baby. I don't care. Um, this is all good. Every single thing of it is a good sign. Because if my daughter didn't make a mess, there'd be something wrong with her. If my daughter stopped smelling uh, or sweating or pooping or peeing, one possible explanation would be that she's dead. Living things, organic things, make a mess. The Christian life is messy. Deal with it. Some of you don't want to deal with the mess. That's why you want to hide it in the closet and fix it because you don't want to be a mess in front of the world. It's messy. Organic things, living things, they make a mess. It's okay. I'm not saying go sin freely in the world. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the very process of growth and change is messy. It's a struggle. It's a fight. There will be loss. There will be pain. There will be sadness. There will be growth. There will be fruit. There will be love. There will be joy and peace. And this is all for His glory. It really is. God is pleased with this. And as we become more and more like Him, as God takes us, little weeds, and grows us into trees full of righteousness, grows us from little sweaty, smelly babies, into people that look and act and love like Jesus, He's glorified. When Jesus returns, and we're still not perfect, but have been slowly made more like Him, He comes back to His people, not as a judge, but as a bridegroom, for a bride that He's been working and preparing that He finds beautiful. If you're a Christian, that's you. He delights in you. He's committed to making you perfect for Himself. And you yourself, I mean, you don't always get a good view of it because you're a mess or you're hiding in the closet. But for the most part, you'll be periods in your life where you can look back and say, well, I am what I am and I'm a mess, but I am not what I used to be. God is making me more loving and more like Himself. And it's wonderful. I am not the man I should be. I will never be the man I should be this out of death. But I am not the man that I was. And I am very grateful for that. Let's see. I think we're just about done. Uh, if you're a Christian, you should be filled increasingly with love, with the fruit of righteousness, with joy, with praise. I'm not saying you should be like this all the time. Yes, you should. You're not going to be. Because you still have a sin problem, and you're going to to the day you die. But increasingly, day after day, year after year, slow, long fight, you're going to look more and more like Jesus. You're going to be filled with fruit. The question I have for you is, what do you feel like you're full of right now? What are you full of? Anxiety? Lust? Pride? Worry? I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just trying to show you what might be in there. Another diagnostic question to help you get at this, and this is true whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, because non-Christians pray. Not all of them, but lots of them. What do you pray for? My old seminary professor wrote that children pray, Lord, give me. Mature people pray, Lord, conform me. We don't need any more things for the most part. We live in a good place. We need to become better different people. Um, and what do you pray for? Do you pray like Paul for others? 
to be more like Jesus? Do you pray for yourself to be a more loving, fruitful person? Do you want God to change you? Some people would frankly rather die than change. And lastly, how do you change? How do you grow? And the answer is true regardless of who you are in the room, where you are. The answer is the same. It is the gospel. Get it in verse 11, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. We actually get it in verse 9. My prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge. And the knowledge here is a personal knowing, a personal knowledge of God, of Jesus. It's not some esoteric knowledge. It's a very personal, life-on-life, reality relationship with a living God. And the same good news that saves you is the same good news that will make you more and more like Jesus every day. Christianity is not a beauty contest. It is a beautification project. Malcolm Muggeridge was an English uh, journalist. became a Christian uh, later in his life. And at one point, his wife fell seriously ill. It didn't seem like she was going to make it. And he writes that it was a cruelly anxious time in their lives. Each day, he went and sat with her. She was fighting to live. He could see her face sink down where it just seemed like it was skin on skull. Her body was a yellow skeleton. And he writes, while I was there, the doctor came in and said in the night she had lost a lot of blood and desperately needed a blood transfusion. Wouldn't I do it for a donor? I asked. My blood count was taken. I was approved. Satisfactory. Then and there, by a procedure that would seem grotesque today, I was joined to her by a tube which would pump, which had a pump in the middle, so I could actually watch the blood being pumped out of me and into her. Uh, never in all our lives together had I so completely and perfectly and joyously experienced love's fulfillment as that moment. For the first time, he writes, this is amazing, for the first time I truly understood what love meant. And we have here a picture of what Jesus does for us. Jesus gives his life, spills his blood to forgive us. We have access to that forgiveness by simply receiving it by faith. But he doesn't stop there. He unites himself to us in a vital relationship. He does not leave. That vital union is the blood supply to us that keeps us alive and makes us more like him. That gives us life, that gives us abundant life, that works this kind of love and fruit in our lives. To the glory of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that